Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the readings from the Feast of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And uh, the Gospel is from St. Luke, the first chapter, the 39th to the 56th verse. And um, it is basically introducing us into the proclamation of Mary's role in salvation. And uh, it is her encounter with Elizabeth. So let's... um, we 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 have to we have to kind of understand that as Luke writes this, Luke is kind of an imaginative author, and he there is no problem whatsoever with kind of pulling texts from the Old Testament, creating composite texts, and all of it having to do with the God's role as a savior, how he was the uh, how he was the savior and the guardian of his people in the Old Testament, and how this now is introduced into the New Testament through through the Virgin Mary. So what we're dealing with here now is the proclamation of Mary, basically, as the new Ark of the Covenant. And uh, it relates, and it is connected, with uh, a text from the book of, of Revelation, where that where there there is um, the woman crowned with the uh, standing on the moon with twelve stars on her head for a crown. She was pregnant and in labor, crying aloud in the pangs of childbirth. And then a huge red dragon, which had seven heads and ten horns, and each of the seven heads crowned with a coronet. Its tail dragged a third of the stars from the sky and dropped them into the earth. And the dragon stopped in front of the woman as she was having the child so that he could eat it as soon as it was born from its mother. The woman brought a male child into the world, the son who was to rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And the child was taken straight up to God to his throne while the woman escaped into the desert where God had made a place of safety for her. And then I heard a voice shout from the heavens, Victory and power and empire forever have been won by our God and all authority for his Christ. So this is kind of the introduction now. And, and this, this image of the woman about to give birth, in the book of Revelation, as far as most of the scholars are concerned, this is the story. The book of Revelation, uh, according, to, according to most of the scholars, is not certainly a book of, of uh, seeing the future or predicting the future. It is a dramatic and what we call an apocalyptic, it is apocalyptic literature. And what it really does is it, it, raises, it raises to, to uh, the, the level of art and poetry a reflection and contemplation on what the church has experienced upon the present world. So what we have seen now as this book of Revelation comes to the fore is that um, they, they see the, if, if John is the author of the Revelation, and some scholars say he is and some say he isn't, but what he's doing now is showing you with great drama in a style of literature reminiscent of Daniel and his apocalyptic lit- visions. What he's seeing now is the trial, the, 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 the trial of the church. In, in around the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. 
And the church has, in fact, after the persecution begins under Nero in 64 AD, the church does take deep roots in the desert then. And it is at the beginning, then deep into the desert, that, uh, that much of the church flees to, uh, to escape Roman persecution. And, um, and so no matter how much the powers and how much the forces, a great red dragon, nothing is more powerful than the emperor and the empire of Rome in, in this stage in, in history. And, uh, and so that which seeks to devour the child, that which seeks to destroy the Christ and, uh, and to kill the church is unleashed by the emperor Nero. The great and ferocious um, persecutions began a little bit later, but it's at this time, too, that we, that we hear of the trials of, of St. Polycarp, the disciple of, of the evangelist John, and of his disciple Ignatius on his way to, the, to be fed to the, to the beasts in the Roman Forum. So it is, it is, I suppose we could say in our common use of the word, it is an apocalyptic age for the church. John has already fled Ephesus and is in exile on the Isle of Patmos, and, and all things seem to be in a state of upheaval. In the midst of that, the Blessed Mother arises as kind of a beacon of hope and kind of a sign of humanity's role in the redemption of of the world. So that when we get then to the Feast of the Assumption itself, we we are dealing with something that was defined by Pope Pius Pius XII in uh, in 1950. And it was Munificentissimus Deus was the name of his decree. And in that he argued that from the very earliest days that the Church had believed in the Assumption of Mary. He cites in his argument, therefore, art and architecture, and particularly relies strongly on the preaching of St. John Damascene in the 7th century. Um, that, and it is kind of also a conclusion. If, if death entered the world through sin, and if Mary herself was free from sin, um, then certainly the corruption associated with death was not something that it was possible for her to undergo. In the Eastern Church, they say she did not die, um, <clears throat> and they call it the dormition of Mary, the falling asleep of Mary. In the Western Church, we acknowledge her death as we acknowledge Jesus' death, but we do not acknowledge any corruption having to do with that death. And just as Jesus raised from the dead, so Mary is assumed also bodily into heaven at the, uh, at the moment of her death. And we, we say this because this shows us, and this leads the way for us and shows us that sinlessness is the, is the passport, I suppose we can say, into the eternal kingdom, which is why the Catholic Church believes in purgatory, because we believe that to become sinless is a participatory event in our lives. God does not zap us with salvation. And so when that process, <clears throat> that process then has to be finished before we reach that kind of perfection where we are worthy to enter into the presence of God himself. So it's all a piece of the whole, this assumption of Mary. And it is all part of an understanding of a relationship between ourselves and God. That certainly in much of the Reformed theology, and unfortunately we hear this often now too in Catholic homilies at funerals, 
that uh, somehow or other we, we canonize the dead each time we bury them, which is, which is a very Protestant thing to do. Because for us, we do not believe that if God does not zap us in life with salvation, he does not zap us in death either. He allows us to journey with him, to participate with him, and, uh, and to be healed by, by the wonders of his presence and by the wonders of his love in order that healed by him and through our own to the degree possible participation and consent that we continue our journey, but this time with the goal locked in, this time with the goal assured. All we have to do is get there and we are not going to lose our way. So purgatory is actually a place of, of consolation for us. For does it mean the person is saved? No. Does it mean definitely the person will be saved? Yes. And so we allow then our understanding of the freedom of human nature, our understanding of God's great respect for the nature which he created, to continue to be participate and, and with the grace of God fulfill itself on its journey into the eternal kingdom. Mary certainly without sin was, as it says in the Annunciation story, full of grace. She was without sin. And so this journey to completion was never something that was important for her to do or that she needed to do. It was, in fact, simply to share with humanity as Christ did the experience of death, but then also to show us and to prefigure for us the, the consequences uh, of, uh, of grace and the consequences of sinlessness and show us that where Mary, where Jesus has gone, we too will follow. Where Mary has gone, we as human beings as she was will follow as well when the sins of our lives have been expunged and when we are prepared worthily to enter into the kingdom of God. That kind of prefiguration also enters into the contemporary debate on, on the Eucharist that the idea that somehow or other um, you know, we have to be perfect before we receive the Eucharist. Absolutely not, because we're not perfect. Do we have to, however, do what we can in our participation with grace to make ourselves presentable to the Lord? Yes, we do. And, and, that, and so there is the idea of the worthy reception of communion. That doesn't mean that we're saints and have no problems. That means that we have done our best to cleanse ourselves, done our best to repent of our sins, and present ourselves as worthy as we can be at this moment to the Lord. Can we exist in, in deep and radical sin and cling to that and adhere to that and then say, yeah, but, but I should go to the Eucharist? And it, no, that we should not do that. And those who interpret the Eucharist is in, is as a substitute for, for repentance and as a substitute for the confession of our sins somehow or other have lost the sense of Eucharistic theology within the Catholic tradition. So that it isn't a question then of saying when, when, when we die, do we automatically then get zapped and become perfect and enter the kingdom of heaven? That's kind of a contradiction to our very human nature. And, uh, and, and so God respects what he has created to its very fulfillment. And that's a positive turn. That's not a negative thing about death. That's a very positive thing about death. Because we want to be able to be participants and what the Lord has asked us to participate in. So then we turn from there 
to Mary set out and went as quickly as she could to a town in the hill country of Judah. Um, this is the gospel for, for the Feast of the Assumption, and it is the gospel then that uh, is of the visitation. And it says, she went into Zacharias's house and greeted Elizabeth. Now as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She gave a loud cry and said, of all women, you are the most blessed, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why should I be honored that a visit with a visit from the mother of my Lord. This is this greeting of Elizabeth to Mary is a compositive greeting actually taken from the Old Testament. And it has to do with the with David welcoming the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, and and as he does so, um, he he welcomes the Ark of the Covenant and leaves it for three months in the in the home of um, I think Abed, um, I can't recall exactly the name, but he leaves it there for three months, and we find in this text that Mary stayed with her three months and, uh, and then, returned, then returned home. Also, so what, what Elizabeth is acknowledging then in the visitation is that, um, that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant and greets her in words very similar to the words that David has greeted the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. And then when, when Elizabeth acknowledges that and, uh, and begins, to, uh, be, begins to sing the praises of her Lord who is being carried in the New Covenant, which is, which is the Blessed Mother, um, then Mary, then Mary says, um, and, 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 and Elizabeth says this is interesting, blessed is she who believed that the promise made her by the Lord would be fulfilled. That's our challenge on the Feast of the Assumption. Believing, through because we look at the example of Mary, believing that the promise made to us would be fulfilled because we have now seen it fulfilled in the Assumption of the Mother of God. And so... Um, then Mary responds with the Magnificat, and the Magnificat is then a way to, it is an Old Testament text primarily, um, a composite of Old Testament texts, in which Mary is recalling God's saving work among the, um, among the people and, uh, of the Old Covenant. And it is, it is a very, it's a, it's a very beautiful text. And my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit exalts in God my Savior, because he has looked upon his lowly servant. Um, yes, from the day forward, all generations will call me blessed, for the Almighty has done great things for me. This, in a way, is, is taken from all through um, different parts of Genesis, from Samuel, Genesis, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Job, Sam, Samuel, and so forth. And, and it is kind of a composite. The idea being, of course, that Mary herself, as many of the pious Jews of her day, really did know the scriptures, and they really did know the hymns and the songs and the key words and the key places in Old Testament, what we call Old Testament scripture. And they saw then, then they could come to understand. It was those people who understood the Messiahship of Jesus. It was not the ones who did not know or did not care about the messages that came from the Old Testament. 
And so Mary now proclaims that, and and it's a, it's a beautiful and a wonderful text. And in that beautiful and in that wonderful text, what happens is, is that Mary now proclaims basically the fulfillment of all <clears throat> the fulfillment of all that has happened f- between God and Israel through the ages and acknowledges God and Israel through the ages that um, that he has actually fulfilled his promise he has actually saved his people and so Mary now the ark of the new covenant proclaims the salvation of the world through the birth of her own son whom she knows to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, whom she knows to be something more than merely human. And in so doing, she acknowledges then that it is the presence in him of the living God. She knows this while she carries him in the womb, and John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth acknowledges it as well. And so what we have then is kind of an encounter of of the covenants, Elizabeth carrying the last of the prophets of the Old Covenant, and therefore representing the Old Covenant in her encounter with Mary, who is the New Covenant, carrying now the new author of the New Covenant. And so it shows kind of a peaceful and a joyful transference of the salvation of God from the prophetic uh, tradition of the Old Testament into the messianic tradition of the New Testament. It is a sign, therefore, in the New Testament of a proclamation of the fulfillment of the promises that God has already made to his people. And in the fulfillment of those promises, in Jesus Christ, we see the witness, then, of the fulfillment of those promises in the assumption of the mother of God in the assumption of Mary into heaven. For this is what it means to, in John 20, where it says, you know, whose sins you forgive, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And then he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. That that seems to be the mission then. If the Father has sent him and the Holy Spirit then gives them the power of forgiveness, it is the power of the lifting of the consequences of sin from the backs of humanity. And and that is symbolized to us in the life of the Virgin, who is immaculately conceived and therefore without sin, who therefore travels as the Ark of the Covenant during her pregnancy with Jesus, and then who as the first disciple in the New Covenant and the most important disciple of the New Covenant, she follows him faithfully all the way to the cross and to the resurrection. And then when she herself... Um, is time for her to die. She does die, according to the Western tradition, but she does not experience the corruption of death. She is immediately taken up into heaven. We have to experience the corruption of death. We have to experience the deterioration of our bodies. And um, and whether we do it in fire or in the ground, um, it is the destruction of everything that we have known physically about ourselves. And uh, and we await then for the general resurrection for us to be reunited in the wholeness of our persons as human beings of both body and spirit, body and soul. So Mary, however, has bypassed the corruption um, element of redemption and uh, and goes directly to heaven because she is certainly without sin. So when we then begin to reflect upon this whole and mysterious business, um, 
we we began to see that uh, it is uh, a story actually of redemption itself and in this story of redemption itself it is it is situated uh, in the blessed mother and that's why the catholic church actually um that's why the catholic church actually has such devotion to the blessed mother it's not devotion to the blessed mother because um she is um because she is simply the mother of Jesus of Nazareth. Um, those in other Christian traditions who do honor her, honor her as such. But they do not honor the deeper meaning of her role in the redemption of humanity. They don't honor the fact that it is through her permission in the fiat that Mary allows redemption to enter into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. She, like Eve, could have said no. She, unlike Eve, did not say no and welcomed the Redeemer into the world. And so she becomes, at the very beginning of the story of redemption, the, the portal, the passageway, the permissive passageway that allows God himself to come into the world without imposing himself upon humanity, without robbing humanity of its own freedom, by coming through a human person into the world. And the story of the visitation is the proclamation of what she has done. And then, it, again, you know, it's um, the, uh, um, when, when Mary says, you know, this has been granted to me, that, or Elizabeth says, this has been granted me, the mother of the Lord should come to me. This echoes the words of David to the ark of the Lord, where it remained in the house of Obed-Edom, for, for, for three months. That's in Second Samuel 6, 9 through 11. And so it is basically intentionally in Luke's gospel a bringing forth of the image of the Ark of the Covenant because the very line that Elizabeth uses is kind of an echoing of David's line when he brings, when he brings the Ark into, into Jerusalem. So this is, this is all, it, it's a highly symbolic feast it's no less real. You know, there's nothing more real than, than the assumption bodily of the Blessed Mother into heaven. I mean, that, that's, while that is a real event, just like Mary's pregnancy is a real event, just like the visitation is a real event, they also, as real events also, as most great events, also have a higher, a deeper dimension of understanding what they are, a more profound insight, a more profound look into the, uh, into the mystery of salvation. And we have that in the gospel. And it's, it's interesting, too, that much of what Elizabeth says, not only does she echo David and his acknowledgement of the coming of the Ark of the Covenant, but her prayer is, uh, but the, what she does say simply is also reminiscent of, of the prayer of Hannah, as is, um, as is the Magnificat of the Blessed Mother, that it is in some way, shape, or form gathering together this whole story of salvation, anchoring that story of salvation at this present moment in her womb, which is the child. It is then in the apocalyptic literature that we saw in the very beginning of this, of, of this broadcast, we saw in the very beginning what was happening. And, um, and what we see 
then is that they understand that the author of, of the author of the apocalypse understands, and in that understanding of the of the apocalypse, that they um, they see the drama of what the ch- of the beginning of the church's journey in history. The Lord has risen from the dead. Mary has been assumed bodily into heaven. The, the evangelist John is, is in exile on the island of Patmos. Nero has burned down the Christian, the Christian area of Rome. The persecutions have begun. And so as they stand back, then they see in dramatic apocalyptic fashion, this is our story at this very moment. This is the way it is at this very moment. This is what's happening, that they are trying to destroy the church. They are trying to kill the Christ. And, of course, that's not going to be possible. But they, they, in a way, present in artistic and poetic ways the kind of the drama, the tragedy, the hardship, um, and yet at the same time the security and the hope that faith in God gives. For the child is snatched up to God and the woman hides in the desert. And, uh, and the, the beast is, is not able to destroy her as he tries. The beast is not able to destroy the mother of God. He is not able to destroy the church. And so in the end, in the end, in the, in the apocalypse we hear, then I heard a voice shout from heaven, victory and power and empire forever have been won by our God and all authority for his Christ. Then we hear that and we hear, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy reaches from age to age. This is the hymn of Mary, certainly, but it is also the hymn of the church. It is also the hymn that responds to the apocalyptic vision that we see in the book of Revelation, to the great danger and the great destruction that is going on. And yet he has routed the proud of heart. He has pulled down princes from the thrones, exalted the lowly. The hungry is filled with good things. He has come to the help of Israel's servant, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, of his mercy to Abraham and to his descendants forever. It's wonderful that here now we have a vision, a poetic vision, of the great trials of the church and the great trials that surround the presence of Christ in the Lord uh, in the world we hear then we see in the gentle virgin the ark of the covenant protecting him in his very first moments very first months here among us as the redeemer as the messiah we hear him proclaimed by both the baptist and by elizabeth the ark of the old covenant in the story and then we hear Mary's song of triumph. She, she personalizes it, but she does represent the church. And in personalizing it, then she assures us, she assures us that what they have seen in the visions, the apocalyptic visions, will be overcome by the goodness and the promise and the mercy of God. And that it begins now, it begins with her, and it begins with her child. And then the story continues until we have seen the suffering, the death, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. And then after that, we have seen the persecutions begin again. And then we have seen the Blessed Mother fulfill the promises of God to his people, the bodily assumption into heaven to be with God forever. So it's a vast 
feast day. And it's a feast day that encompasses the whole story of salvation. And it's one that we can spend many, many hours reflecting upon and much with much gratitude in our hearts, much wisdom in our minds and in our hearts, and much hope also. Because what the Lord has promised, as Elizabeth says to Mary, he will fulfill. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.